0: Welcome to Conservation Unfiltered, a podcast all about the North American model of conservation and your chance to dive into conversations about trends, research, and outdoor activities. It's time to get wild with the 2021 Conservation Media Award-winning host, Jason Creighton.
1: Getting closer to the sources of my food made me more willing to entertain this idea. And I did. I love venison. And I love the idea of eating venison. And I didn't like the idea that I wasn't going to do it just because I was a sissy.
0: Welcome back to another episode of the Conservation Unfiltered podcast presented by Conserve the Wild. I'm your host, Jason Creighton, and this is episode number 123, To Boldly Grow as a New and Eco-Friendly Hunter. This week, I'm going to be talking with Tamar Haspel about her new experiences in trying to live eco-friendly. Tamar is a columnist for the Washington Post and author of a new book, To Boldly Grow, Finding Joy, Adventure, and Dinner in Your Own Backyard. We're going to be talking about how her experiences in trying to live and eat a more eco-friendly lifestyle, and some pros and cons and some things that came up in that process. It's going to include trying to grow a garden, hunting, and the joys and frustrations that each provide. So let's dive right in with Tamar. we keep going a real quick question for you are you concerned with urban sprawl are you concerned with the threat of our increased human presence has put on wildlife and wild spaces if so an easy next step for you to try to help with this situation is to visit our patreon page and become a monthly supporter if you like this podcast if you would like to help form a new nonprofit that helps combat and mitigate the effects of urbanization? Visit patreon.com slash conserve the wild. That's patreo dot com slash conserve the wild. Go visit today and become a sponsor. joining us today, as you heard in the introduction, Tamar Haskell. Tamar, how are you doing today?
1: I am just fine. I'm locked in my closet trying to pretend there isn't a storm outside while I talk to you and try and, you know, keep the noise of things blowing around off the podcast. And I know I
0: appreciate it. I'm sure that the uh, listeners appreciate that as well. Um, so the reason why i invited you on the podcast is uh, because you are, uh, by definition, a adult onset hunter, and uh, you have a very interesting take as far as how you uh, want to gather your food So uh, and have that sort of connection with what you eat, which is something that I feel like the vast majority of people in our country don't think about. There's a very big disconnect. So what is what was that first initial interest, or why do you have an interest in sort of this hunter-gatherer lifestyle of procuring your own food, not from the grocery store?
1: Well, it all started when my husband and I uh, moved from the Upper West Side of Manhattan to a very small house on two wooded acres in the wilds of Cape Cod. And it started not with any kind of ideological commitment or any kind of drive. It's just that we looked around and I I was a food writer and I thought, well, okay, well, what can we do here that we can't do on Cape Cod in New York? And the answer was all kinds of stuff. And so I started doing it Just because it was interesting. And so, of course, we planted a garden. um, And then from there, we built a chicken coop and we started having laying hens. We did a bunch of foraging because we live on Cape Cod. We have world class fish. And my husband grew up fishing. So I started to learn to fish. And and this project sort of snowballed and at first we decided okay let's let's try and do this thing where we eat at least one food a day that we glean from the landscape around us whether it's grown or or hunted or fished or foraged and and it it was it was more than a lark but not much more but then it 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 turned out it was surprisingly powerful to me and and i think anybody who has ever eaten a tomato from their own garden or a venison steak from the deer that they've shot and I ask all kinds of people this does that food feel different from other food and everybody says that it does and so it, it's that power and that connection that was really eye-opening and interesting to me and so uh, like I said it it started off basically on a whim but then it turned out to be incredibly compelling.
0: Now, this is a question I never thought I would ever ask, but uh, I find myself asking it to a lot of people now. Uh, because you have set a path for yourself where you you are gathering food yourself, foraging, growing, mm-hmm. um, hunting, when the pandemic started, and as, not, I, I take it back, not when it started, but when we started to get you know a month into it, two months mm-hmm. into it, did you feel like that power That you felt was heightened because you were able to provide for yourself in uncertain times?
1: No, absolutely not. And one of the lessons of doing this, of getting a lot of our food ourselves, is that unless you go full out, you know, don't do your job, uh, spend your time doing all of this, you're not going to procure anything like enough food doing this. The year I kept track, and my husband Kevin and I were doing just about everything, and the year I kept track, we only really accounted for about 30% of our calories. And one of the big lessons of doing this is that um, one of the best things about it isn't Self-sufficiency, which we were never in it for self-sufficiency, but it's actually the opposite. It's interconnectedness. Doing these things connected us to our community. It made us realize you know, how much work goes into growing food. Um, it made us appreciate all of those things more. But no, I don't have any of the sense that that what we do is some kind of bulwark against uh, shortfalls out in the supply chain. Okay, that's And I know a, that's different, it's different for other people, but for me, that's the answer.
0: No, that, that's a very interesting take on it um, because I mean, I know personally, uh, whenever people start talking about like shortages of meat in the grocery stores and, and we're hitting that again now and, and crazy prices, like I felt less anxiety because I know mm-hmm. I have a freezer full of venison and mm-hmm. pheasants and you know different things that, that I can pull from. Um, but it, it's an interesting take because even if we decided we're gonna just go sh- as, if I went and, and ate nothing but what I grew and, and what I hunted, you're right. Like I would there, that cannot account for a hundred percent of the calories. Um, not so, even close. No. So while I do feel a little bit better with the aspect that I can provide for the family, I, mm-hmm. it is a good it is a good reminder that, like you said, unless you quit your job and go full force, you're not going to fully sustain yourself. Um, so that interconnectedness is definitely, you know, it's something that I feel, uh, you know, with that. So that that's a very interesting take that, that I don't hear much, um, but it's a very valid point um, that I think, I'm I'm very glad that you brought that up Um,
1: in the. the Can I I say one more thing about that? Because because I think that that there's that there is a view out in the world that the reason people do this is to work towards self-sufficiency, which is, you know, in in a lot of ways, that is an ideological commitment. um, And and it is a hedge against you know, anything from supply chain disruptions to doomsday. And for me, I guess I want to emphasize that you don't have to think about it that way to get joy and pleasure and satisfaction from doing these things. They're interesting and positive um, and an opportunity to learn things you don't know, aside from all of those other things that we end up talking about a lot.
0: Yeah, no, that, that's a a good way to look at it, you know, um, even just understanding how the, like you said, the community, um, you know, the world around you works a little bit Mm -hmm. on a, on a little bit more of a deeper note. Um, you know, while that freezer full of meat that I have is, is helpful to my family right now, uh, because, you know, meat prices are high. Mm -hmm. That's, that's just sort of helping on a very short-term scale. Not, it's not necessarily a viable long-term option for hundred, like you said, hundred percent of the calories. No, that that's a very right. valid point. When we, when we initially started connecting, it was because of uh, that, that article in the Washington post that you wrote about venison is the most eco-friendly food on the planet. If you hunt the deer yourself, my first question is, what does eco-friendly eating mean to you?
1: Well, it's so difficult to do, and and to define it, it's also difficult to do it. Um, and you know, I write about this kind of stuff for a living, and the 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 theme of picking things that you want to eat with the environment in mind is. Is trade-offs because they're always trade-offs. So it's hard to say, you know, what is ecological eating. And yes, um, I think venison, uh, wild venison, um, it tops the charts because these animals are overpopulated in lots of areas. They're doing ecological damage. They're also ruminants, which means that they are uh, they're emitting methane as they digest their food. And so, to take an overpopulated animal that's doing ecological damage is, I think, the single best way to eat meat. So that's venison. It's also feral pigs, um, uh, Canada geese. There, uh, there are also some fish that are that have become uh, overpopulated in certain areas and are threatening the ecosystems there. And I think that is the number one ecological way to eat but there you know there are other ways too and and you know people's eyes glaze over when you start talking about well it's really staple crops that can be grown with the most limited amount of impact to the environment so it's it's uh tubers like potatoes and sweet potatoes it's legumes uh like um uh uh chickpeas and dry beans it's whole grains like wheats and oats and and barley um and so those two things top the list of uh of eating ecologically and and you know some of the things that people automatically associate with food that's good for people and planet is vegetables and that's not really true because those are those actually are very resource intensive
0: yeah it's uh very enlightening whenever uh to me, whenever I talk to someone that has decided to grow like their first tomato plant, uh, there's a lot of water that's necessary there. Uh, If you are not checking that tomato plant multiple times a day for tomato bugs and, and things of that nature, then you need to be spraying it with pesticides. Um, It uses a lot of nutrients out of the soil. So once you start getting into your, you know, third and fourth year of planting a tomato plant in the same spot, if you're not, you know, you know, Using fertilizers uh, or compost, the hornworms get there. <laughs> yep, it's it, it is very um, labor intensive for vegetables. So uh, that's a very however, good point. I
1: I don't want to discourage people from doing it because and this is the whole thing about okay, well, why are you doing this if you're doing it you know because you want to minimize your your carbon footprint or your environmental impact you know that's one kind of goal and it's actually difficult to do that gardening there's there are some things that you can grow and some things that you can do and it matters if you are skilled it matters if you have good soil we happen not to you know all it takes is a couple extra trips in the to the garden store with my F250 and, you know, I've blown my carbon budget for, for my garden. And, <clears throat> but that's why it's so important to talk about the other reasons to do it. Um, the the joy, the exercise, the learning new things, the the ability to show a kid where food comes from. These things all really matter. And they're more of the reasons that I'm doing it.
0: Now. I have, to, I have to bring up this point just because you hear it a lot. Um, the people that talk about wanting to be eco-friendly or um, people want to talk about uh, where their food comes from and, and that take that sort of moral, that try to take the moral high ground oftentimes will uh, say that eating a vegan diet is the only way to really mm-hmm. be eco-friendly and, and they take, as I said, this moral high ground. You've taken a different approach. Uh, why mm-hmm. is that?
1: Well, I, you know, I I have to say that I admire a commitment to a vegan diet because, I mean, one of the reasons we're in this situation where so much of the food we grow, whether it's, you know, animals in confined spaces or, you know, it's it's huge swaths of of corn and soy with nutrient runoff into our waters— A lot of this happened because of the way the path that industrialized agriculture took in this country. And so there are ecological impacts. And most people, you know, talk to the hand. They don't want to hear about it. They don't want to think about it. They just want to go to the grocery store and get the food that they want to feed to their families. And so I am not a vegan. Um, I I don't think that the the commitment to veganism fits my values but i admire a principled stand and so i am i am 100% you know supportive of people who want to eat better for the planet by eliminating meat and i think most of that commitment comes from Um, an objection to the way that most animals are raised in this country. And I have had people who are vegan come to my house and be willing to eat the eggs from my chickens, the venison from the deer that I harvested in Virginia, um, the pork from the pigs that we raised. Um, And I think that often we don't talk so much about that aspect of veganism and i know that vegans especially to hunters can be extremely confrontational as hunters can to vegans and i would love to see that conversation ratchet down and be a little more constructive because i i have respect all around
0: yeah i agree with that a hundred percent because oftentimes uh you know i have a neighbor uh that is vegan and so we've we've had this conversation many times you know myself as a hunter her as a vegan and it turns out that we actually we've made our <coughs> life choices myself as a hunter and her becoming vegan for the same reasons, because we don't like the industrial food complex. We don't like the mm-hmm. way that livestock are raised in an industrial way. Uh, so she is, you know, she now has chickens that she'll eat those eggs. Um, she has eaten some of the venison that I've prepared. Um, and, you know, we actually have very similar goals and and thought processes in that. And I find that that's more commonly the case than what the two extremes want to admit.
1: And I I think you're totally right about that. And, you know, I'm going to go full out kumbaya on you here, because I think that food in our polarized, poisonous, public uh, discourse is a uniter. And, you know, I think that especially meat and 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 hunting because as you say I think a lot of hunters hunt for the same reasons that a lot of vegans veg and And I think we should be having that conversation, especially since, and let's call it as we see it, hunters tend to lean right, vegans tend to lean left, and here's this area that we can agree on. Why can't we talk about that in a way that is mutually supportive and respectful and maybe try and establish some common ground? And, like, so I... I, I write for one of these elite coastal news uh, newspapers, the Washington Post. And let's face it, everything about me screams New York Jew. (laughs) And when I go into the heartland and I talk to farmers, sometimes standing out in a cornfield, most of these people are older. They're men. They're white. They tend to be right leaning. They often live in in communities that are very oriented around the church. And given the coverage that they've gotten in left-leaning media, they have every reason to be trepidatious about this kind of meeting, as I do, because there's a gulf between us. Can we bridge this gulf? Can we talk about something constructive? Can we understand each other? And you know, on my phone, I always have the picture of the last deer that I shot. And we can often talk about hunting because most farmers either do or they have people hunt on their land because deer are, are a threat to their crops. And if you can talk about hunting, you can talk about guns. And damn, if you can talk about guns, you can talk about anything. So I I, I really hope that this book is, it, well, it does. It makes the case for the kumbaya power of food.
0: Yeah. And you're really diving into the whole Uh, aspect that I really try to live my life by, which is focus on what you have in common with other people. Don't focus Mm -hmm. on what is different about you because it turns out that we have a lot more in common than, than we want to necessarily admit. And the one thing that we always have in common is food. We all have to eat right. Um, now we all have a little bit different tastes, but let's not focus on the fact that, you know, you like your food, uh, super bland and I like my food, super spicy. Instead, let's focus on what we maybe, you know, would agree upon uh, in that sort of food process. So, when it came to to hunting, like, and the book that you mentioned is "To Boldly Grow: Finding Joy, Adventure, and Dinner in Your Own Backyard." When did you make that decision that hunting is something that you would be willing to try?
1: It was a slow process because um, I didn't grow up hunting, I didn't grow up in a household with guns. Um, when I married my husband, he had two shotguns because he shot trap and skeet, and I, when we lived in New York, I didn't even want them in the house. Um, and But when we moved to Cape Cod and I started doing all these food-related projects, Um, getting closer to the sources of my food made me more willing to entertain this idea. And I did, I love venison and I love the idea of eating venison. And I didn't like the idea that I wasn't going to do it just because I was a sissy. And so for for, for my 47th birthday, I got a shotgun and a crew cut and I never looked back and you know, I've grown my hair back out since then, but, but I still have the shotgun. And I've since then, you know, New York is a shotgun state. And so my first year would shot with a shotgun, but then I've since acquired my trusty Tika 270 and that is my rifle of choice. And, uh, I, I haven't shot I probably shot a half dozen deer, not a whole lot. Um, and, uh, And it's funny because the fact that it was so far out of my comfort zone was what made it satisfying. And, you know, I write for a living and I have worked for decades to try and be a better writer. But if you ask me for a skill that I'm proud of, well, I can shoot field dress and break down a deer.
0: I I, I love the I, I just love how you're. You're putting all those words together and just explaining how, and I can feel how proud you are that you've I learned am. this new skill. And that's one of the things that I love about introducing a new hunter. I grew up hunting. I grew up in a hunting family. Um, it's ingrained in my culture and, and what I know. Uh, one of the things I love about bringing someone new into hunting is watching them get filled with that pride as they learn these new skills and realize that they can provide X number of meals for their family. And, you know, you can tell they have a sense of accomplishment. And that is a, as much as I get super proud of myself, whenever I shoot, you know, a nice buck or, you know, I planned a hunt and it came together. uh, I have found as I've gotten older and matured as a hunter, that I actually feel more pride when I'm able to help someone else, you know, Acquire that food and, and acquire those new new skills. Uh, in the book, you mention that this wasn't super easy for you to harvest your first deer <laughs> to kill your first deer. Um, I feel like a lot of non-hunters, you know, my coworkers, uh, they all know I hunt, and I feel like until they really start talking to me a lot, they they think they have this picture in their mind that hunting is just you walk out your back door there's a deer, you shoot it, right? Because they live in suburbia and there's deer in their backyard. That's not the case with hunting. Uh, So what was it like those first couple of times you went out and you were not successful? Oh, Jason,
1: it was brutal. (laughs) And... I mean, we live on Cape Cod that has maybe, you know, 20,000 hunters and seven deer. So, you know, we were the last to the party. And there are places where you can hunt deer. But the people who get them are the people who really know what they're doing and have been hunting here since they were kids. And, you know, we tried on Cape Cod and then we figured, oh, no, we got to go someplace where there are more deer (laughs) and fewer hunters. And excuse me, we tried a bunch of different places. We went to Vermont, we went to Maine, um, and it was really frustrating. And this happened over the course of four seasons. And then, you know, uh, we kind of realized, okay, especially if you're an inexperienced hunter Really, your number one priority needs to be to go where there are a lot of deer. And fortunately, we have a friend who lives in Virginia and has a property that is pretty good sized and is is overrun with deer. It's like a 300 acre sardine can of deer. You can practically shoot at random and get one. They're everywhere. And so once we started going there, then it's, on the one hand, it's, um, it changes the nature of hunting because it means you're not really a hunter; you're a harvester. And um, and yeah, I don't have the skills um, to make myself invisible in the woods, to be able to sneak up on a deer, to shoot it at long range. I am looking for a clean shot that I have absolute confidence in, because. I, I hunt for the table. And, um, and so yeah, if that means going someplace where you can sit in somebody's backyard because the deer are used to having people around and you know the deer come in at dawn and it's, it's really just a matter of being careful to make sure that, that, that you get one. I'm actually more of a harvester than a genuine hunter. Um, and I have real respect for the people who are genuine hunters who have developed those skills. Um, but for me, I've sort of found that the happy medium, you know, you mentioned you're mentioning,
0: you know, sort of feeling like you're a harvester more than a hunter, but I would argue that you, you are a hunter because as I got a little, little preview of this, of your upcoming book, um, you mentioned seeing deer and having them in the sights of your gun.
1: And yes. yet, and
0: yet, not taking the shot because it didn't feel comfortable. You didn't have a clear shot. You weren't sure of the background behind the animal. Those are all things that hunters do. So I would argue that you are just as much of a hunter as someone like me that's spending, you know, a week long uh, trip on his property in archery season trying to harvest a mature buck. Um, you know. You're, well, I you're think going, that's very generous of you. <laughs> no, but see, you're going through the same thought process that I am. Um, while n- everything leading up to, you know, maybe the spot that you're sitting, things like that might not be as in-depth as what I'm thinking. The process in that moment that you're going through in your head is just as much of being a hunter as I am. Uh, so, and, and
1: those things, they're so fundamental. Obviously, your number one concern is is this safe? Can I take this shot safely? And your number two concern is do I have confidence that this will take this animal down with one shot? Because every hunter's nightmare is having to track the wounded animal through the woods and I am proud to say that every deer I have taken has dropped with one bullet. And I, that's not a testament to my skill. The great thing about modern firearms is that you they they go where you aim them. And and you don't have to be particularly skilled, but you have to be careful, and and so that's that's where I am, and I am I'm fascinated by the skills that real hunters have have developed, and and you know one of the one of the themes of the book is that um, is that so many of these enterprises are things where experts can help you only so much. And it's experience that really teaches you how to do these things well. And so you having grown up hunting, have had this chance to develop skills that I probably won't ever develop because at this point I go to places where there are plentiful deer and I aim carefully and take home, you know, the dough for the table. Um, and, but but I do get, I think, To your point, some of the same satisfaction. I take the same care, and I think I get the same feeling.
0: So, with this, since you are a a new hunter, what what has been? And and I ask this partially because you put yourself out there. You talk to people that are not necessarily like yourself, Um, Mm -hmm. and just by the nature of trying new things, that's going to happen. What has the perception of more seasoned hunters been as far as accepting you or helping you or even just generally talking to you?
1: Everybody has been generous and kind and helpful. And I have never met a hunter who has sneered or expressed disdain, um, or kept me at arm's length. Uh, I feel like the hunting community and, you know, I think this is something that that might surprise people on the other end of, of the political spectrum. I think the the hunting community is generally supportive, ecologically minded um, and and committed to values that I think are near universal. And it only takes a few people to spoil that, you know, the guy who shoots out of his truck and, and leaves carcasses around and shoots for sport and, and um, to ruin that perception. But having spent time in the hunting community, I, I feel like I have been accepted and supported a hundred percent of the time.
0: That's great to hear. Uh, you know, I tried to Um, extend that olive branch, right, to to new hunters as a hunter, because I want to be the person that is welcoming and is accepting of whoever wants to do the uh, similar activity that, you know, the same activity Mm -hmm. I want to do. I want to be that, I want to model that behavior that I hope to see out there in the world. So it's great for me to hear that you have been generally accepted and that you've you know, had positive experiences with hunters, because as you mentioned, that's not always the public perception of hunters, right? Like um, when you talk to non-hunters that, you know, uh, whenever, if you would ask them what a hunter looks like, uh, they're either going to explain Elmer Fudd, because that's the cartoons I grew up with, uh, or, you know, the redneck good old boy with beer cans rattling around the back of their truck, you know, just sort of shooting all willy-nilly. And that, you know, in my experience, isn't the case Um, you know all the hunters that I know and interact with like you said we're very ecologically and conservation minded and safe safety is always the key thing there now I will say part of that might be that the couple people that I've run into that you know I see beer cans in the back of their truck and they're hunting um, I don't interact with them like I don't want to be their friends because they're they don't have Quite the same perspective that I feel and reverence that I feel they should have about nature.
1: And you know, I'll always remember this lesson I got when it was one of the first years that I went to Virginia and and took a deer. And it was the first time I was going to process it myself. I had taken it to a local processor before, and um, there was a guy who was also hunting the same private land as I was. Uh, he was from West Virginia. He grew up in a hunting family. Um, he was very skilled, uh, and we had this. We had this deer, and I had field dressed it, and we had skinned it with the old, you know, ping pong the uh, uh, rock behind the, and then we used the truck to take the skin off. I, I got a video of that, and um, and I'm it. It's getting dark and I'm trying to figure out how to to break this animal down. And I've broken down other animals before, but this was my first deer. And he came over and he showed me just how easy it was to quarter a deer. And it's really easy to do. And I would have been there far into the night if he hadn't just come over and and helped me figure it out and show me, you know, exactly where to cut and how to get the ball joint to the rear legs, and that the front legs aren't even attached really. And uh, and and uh, that stuck. That that really sticks with me.
0: Uh, yeah, that, I mean, you know, I think uh, I'm going to tell a quick story first, and then I'm going to ask you what it was like the first time that you field dressed a deer um, and processed it down. Because when I shot my first deer, I was 12 years old, and I was with my father. Uh, who was uh, an adult onset hunter. He started hunting as a way to um, spend more time with his future father-in-law. Um, so, and back then when you were a new hunter, experienced hunters said, there's the woods, go hunt, right? How about um, fig- it? Yeah. Figure it out on your own, where today it's more of a mentorship deal. Um So I shoot my first deer, my my dad's with me, Um, you know, we're happy. Uh, It was a surreal experience as a 12-year-old, because you're still trying to understand the concept of death at that age. Um, Mm -hmm. While you're excited, it's also like, you know, you actually did actually kill something. Um, So when we go to to start the field dressing, um, he said, and, and I do this with any new hunter that I'm with whenever they shoot a deer, he said, I will field dress the first deer. So but then you're on your own after that. So pay attention Mm -hmm. and watch. And then he said, watch everything I do and do it the exact opposite because he is really bad at field dressing deer. Uh, When he's done, he has so much blood on him that he looks like he crawled in and pushed everything out. Um, So I've been lucky enough to learn from my uncle, my grandfather, other friends uh, to be more efficient than my father, to the point where now whenever he shoots a deer, I'm typically the one to field dress it for him just because it takes him so long to do it. Um, But all that story to be said, what was it like for you emotionally, mentally, and then even just physically just field dressing that first deer?
1: It was, it was a very moving experience actually and this was my very first year and it was this little button buck it was a small small deer and um and it was at uh, this is at this point i was still hunting with a, a shotgun a 20 gauge with a deer barrel and so of course you don't have much range and i probably shot this guy at 15 yards and and it was so close that i actually could see the the bloom of red on on his chest and i knew that i had shot it in the right place and 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 he jumped and he was only a, th- a couple of yards from the woods and he ran into the woods and i marked the spot you know where he ran in the woods this is a skill that i have because i play golf and my balls go in the woods all the time <laughs> you and so, me both uh, so i i i dreaded that he had gotten far but I didn't think he had cuz I saw the shot and he was right there just a couple yards into the woods. And so I I took him out of the woods and I took I don't know probably a good 5 minutes to just let the emotions subside. The bu- the 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 deer was dead. Um it was a clean shot exactly where it was supposed to be. Miracle, of miracles. And and now I had to turn to the, you know, the job at hand. And and um, I had a, a knife and gloves. And, and you know, I, I've, I'd broken down all kinds of birds and a few mammals. And I knew that, I mean, I've been on YouTube, which is where we all learn to field dress a deer these days. And when you watch somebody who's experienced doing it, it's crazy because they can do it. How fast can you do it? It was like two minutes and they're done. Yeah. I mean, for
0: me, um, I take a little extra care. I, I like to keep the, the call fat or the, the fat around the, the intestines. Mm-hmm. Um, I keep the heart, I keep the liver, right? Like, so I, and I'm putting those in bags. Um, if I'm just doing like something super quick, uh, you know, for, uh, a, a friend or something, or like my grandfather, I'm just doing it real quick. Uh, I would say six to seven minutes.
1: Yeah, that's really good. I can't tell you how long it took because, like, time stopped. And here I am trying to saw away it. You know, it, if you take all these tentative s- strokes, um, you end up dulling your knife. <laughs> and then it gets even harder. And you don't have the courage to do the whole zip thing because you're afraid you're going to puncture the bowel. And so I went really slowly. Um, but I did it perfectly well and we did we saved the heart and the liver and uh and left the the guts for for the animals and I took that deer and down back down to the house on a tarp it didn't weigh very much so it was easy and then this this is a was a deer that I took to the local processor and so I I put the tarp in the truck I put the deer on the tarp And I drive it down to this local processor. And this is, okay, this is the first deer I've ever shot. I pull in and there's a kid. He's maybe 18 or 19. I'm sure he's been hunting since he was six. And he's working on this 10-point buck. And I walk in, I say, oh, I have a little deer. can, Can you take it? And he says, absolutely. And he walks out with me to the truck and we open the tailgate. And he looks at this little tiny deer lying in the in the bed and he goes, nice truck. <laughs> and I'm like, it is a nice truck. It's an F-250 diesel. It's an awesome truck. It took a little bit of the wind out of my sails. And then, you know, he lifted the thing up like it was effortless. And he walked in and we were doing the paperwork and I, I couldn't help it. I said, this is the first deer I've ever shot. And he looked at me and it's like i was a curiosity as this middle-aged lady who just shot her first deer and he looked at the deer and he looked at, the, at at where the the entrance wound was and he says it looks like it was a perfect shot and i said thank you and and it, it you know on the one hand I, you can tell that that this is moving to me and, and I am proud of it on the other hand I am cognizant that this is a skill that every eight-year-old had 200 years ago <laughs> and and sometimes it feels a little over the top but but I can't say that it wasn't a big deal for me it, it was well and as it should be
0: because you know yeah okay you know couple hundred years ago, a thousand years ago, like you said, you know, kids were able to do this kind of thing, but that's not the way our society works now. There's a lot of things that we used to, that used to be very commonplace that everyone knew how to do that now mm-hmm. very few people know how to do. And this is one of them. Uh, so there should be a, a moment of, of pride and, and uh, an aspect of feeling accomplishment, uh, and being able to, to do this skill. Uh yeah. With this, right, you you have you've shot multiple deer now, um, you you are now a little bit seasoned as a hunter, uh, and as you mentioned, you're doing this to put food on the table. So I have to ask, uh, what is your go to or favorite recipe for venison?
1: Okay, well I'm going to divide it into two because of okay. course, um, the the backstrap and the loin are beautiful. And the way we do that is we, we sous vide them to make sure that we don't overcook them. So you know, you sous vide them to like 128 or something, a low temperature, and then sear them in a super hot cast iron pan. And, you know, just a, a steak like that is a beautiful thing. But once that's gone, which happens pretty quickly, um, my favorite thing to do with venison, and I know this is really, it's sort of pedestrian but um, we've also raised our own pigs, and to grind venison with pork fat and turn that into sausage is one of my favorite uses for venison. It's absolutely delicious.
0: Uh, that that is those are both like two very uh, normal ways to to process yeah. venison. You know, and, and you know a lot of the audience here they're going to know that. They've either had venison before or they are hunters. Um, You know, venison is very lean meat. So that added Mm -hmm. fat definitely is necessary. Um, The sous vide backstrap, uh, that is actually something I have just started doing in the last year or so. And the sous vide is awesome Uh, for anyone that hasn't taken that, um, you know, that step in the cooking process. you, You need to. It really makes for some of the best, especially in venison, meat that you could possibly eat because you can just control the doneness so easily with that. Um, I would, uh, to give you a little bit of advice and, and for my favorite, favorite recipes, um, and the audience is probably rolling their eyes because I talk about these two things all the time. Uh, my two favorite ways, at, excluding backstrap, uh, my two favorite ways to have venison is either Uh, the neck roast, right? So you take a a section of neck. Um, I typically, for a typical deer, uh, I'll cut the neck into two sections, uh, most of the time bone in. And uh, it's just a slow roast in a Dutch oven uh, at low heat, 180 to 200 degrees in the oven for six or eight hours. uh, With whatever kind of flavor profile you want to build in the the liquid that you're, that you're cooking it in and it is fall off the bone, super tender, so flavorful. Uh, so that is one of my favorites. My second favorite that I just started doing recently in the last maybe four or five years, um, is actually canning venison.
1: So, Oh, um, the, you have a the, pressure canner. I take yes, it.
0: Yeah. So the, I grew up in a family that, uh, was very much, uh, into canning vegetables. We have a huge garden, family garden uh, that four families now all participate in. Uh, wow. So we've, can, we've canned vegetables and and very much, you know, because we take pride in that. Um, and so the first deer that I shoot uh, every year, it, I, I will process that down into roasts and steaks and, and things of that nature. Um, but the second deer, I will actually take the vast majority of that deer, everything but the neck roast and the backstrap and I will cube it up every single part of it and then I will can it and wow. uh, I did that out of necessity the first time because mm-hmm. uh, I had a freezer full of, of venison that uh, decided to quit on me and I lost a, a deer and a half of venison oh, which no. was
1: terrible oh, that is terrible yes
0: yeah, so a co-worker as I was you know commiserating this with a co-worker and he said well Start canning meat because that will never happen. Uh, so I tried it, and all it just makes for one of the easiest and most flavorful meals. Because all you have to do is take the take the meat and strain the liquid off to make a gravy. You put the mm-hmm. meat back in to warm it up. Um, sometimes I make a stroganoff with it. Sometimes it is you know like a hot roast beef but venison uh, sandwich, and it is super quick within. 10 minutes I have dinner ready to go and it is I'm taking this as a dinner invitation
1: you know that listen
0: you are welcome anytime (laughs) you want to come on down to southwestern pa to the house I have uh, oh probably 20 quart jars of venison that I will gladly share with you anytime wow
1: that's great
0: and so Let's I want to end our conversation here with uh, a little talk about the book, because we've been talking a lot about um, the hunting aspect of the book, but there's more to it than that. So if someone is uh, scrolling down into the episode details and they're seeing the link for the book uh, to go and purchase it, what are some things that that they're going to find in this book?
1: Well, the book is all about the good things that happen when you just put down your phone, roll up your sleeves, and go outside to get dirty in service of dinner. So it's gardening, it's fishing, it's hunting, it's foraging. And and my husband Kevin and I have done all of those things. Um, And, you know, I think as Americans in general, as you mentioned before, we've gotten really far away from the sources of our food. And you know, the our our inner pendulum has swung away from plants and animals and toward boxes and bags. And I think a lot of people are trying to eat better. They want to reconnect with foods that humans thrive on. And I think that that doing these things is is a, a really powerful and visceral way to change. Your relationship with food it certainly did mine and and as i said every time i ask somebody who gets what we have taken to call first-hand food does that food feel different everybody says yes and i think when you experience that um your inner pendulum does move back toward the plants and the animals and you know the stuff in the boxes and the bags doesn't even really look like food to me anymore and you know don't get me wrong you still can't leave me alone with a bag of doritos but it's a different kind of a thing um and also it gets you outside it gets your kids involved with food and you know building a chicken coop if you've got little kids this is a bona fide responsible job that kids can do feeding chickens and collecting eggs um and i think that that it It makes just an an internal connection. okay, well, this is this is what food is. This is where food comes from. Um, and also there's lots of funny stories.
0: So it, would would I be correct to say that your sort of goal for the book is to inspire people uh, to try something new?
1: You know, I always feel a little bit, um, you know, like it's hubris to say, yes, I want to inspire people. But the bottom line is, yes, I do want to inspire people. I want to bring people along with me on this trip um, and hopefully make people consider doing things that they've never done before. Because it's not just that you might end up eating better. You might end up being better as you push your envelope, extend your comfort zone, and really exert yourself in ways that are unfamiliar.
0: Uh, that is well said, you know, uh, as someone who tries to to grow and learn and constantly try to um, experience new things, I agree with you wholeheartedly that that is really the best part about life is when you get those new experiences. You may never do that thing again, but to experience right. it once, you can say that you did it and it changes you as a person typically in a positive way. So Tamar, thanks for coming on and talking about this. Uh, I highly recommend everyone go out and purchase this book, uh, the uh, advanced copy you gave me. It is funny, it is inspiring, and it showcases the importance of these new experiences. So uh, again, I appreciate you coming on and and talking about this.
1: Well, thanks for having me. I really enjoy talking to other people who have done this kind of thing and You know, finding what's common about our experience and what we experience differently. It's always interesting and eye opening. Thank you for having me. Absolutely.
0: Once again, that'll do it for another episode. Thank you for listening. And big thank you to Tamar for coming on to talk about her experiences. You know, it it was refreshing to me to hear this person explain you know the highs and lows of gardening of hunting uh you know oftentimes i feel like especially those who don't try to garden or don't try to go out and hunt their own food they think it's this sort of like easy process like no problem we just go out we do this uh we're coming back with food all the time uh you know we're just killing because we can uh that's oftentimes not the case you know the hours and hours spent on stand or walking through fields or mountain ridges, uh, you know, with nothing to show for it. Uh, That's all part of the experience. And, you know, it's the same thing with trying to grow a garden. You know, you're at the mercy of nature, of mother nature. And that oftentimes means that uh, we're not as successful as we want to be. And uh, it's just nice and refreshing to hear other people sort of echo, you know, someone else echo the, the same struggles that, you know, we face from time to time. Uh, if you have a chance, go ahead and follow Tamara on Twitter. She's got some great stuff out there. And of course, you know, new uh, articles all the time being posted there. And then uh, if, you have, if you have an interest, which I think you really should, go and purchase her new book, To Boldly Grow. Uh, you can find it on Amazon. You can find it through her publisher. Just Google it. Google her name. Google the book, To Boldly Grow, Finding Joy, Adventure, and Dinner in Your Own Backyard. Uh, I think you'll enjoy it. I enjoyed it. it was, uh, it's, she has some good storytelling in there and some good information. I, I think if you enjoyed this conversation, you're definitely going to enjoy the book. Next week, another great guest. Jo- join us then. And until then, get outside, take someone with you, and stay wild.